Daniel chapter nine, we're going to begin in verse four. And I prayed to the Lord, my God, and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity and we have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us shame of face as it is to this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries in which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face to our kings, our princes and our fathers, because we have sinned against you to the Lord. Our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, our God, to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven, such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayers before the Lord our God, and we have not turned from our iniquities to understand your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord, our God, is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned. We have done Wickedly, O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers. Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh, my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. My God, for your own city and your people are called by your name. In the prayer of Daniel, we see a prayer prompted by sinfulness. Prayer amplified by worship. Prayer energized by the power of God. Prayer expanded by the majesty of God. Prayer magnified by the mercy of God. Prayer focused on the faithfulness of God. Prayer informed by the holiness of God. Prayer motivated for the glory of God. And so Daniel's prayer provides for us not simply a pattern, but there is within this prayer, if you will, life-giving, life-changing power for me and for you. 
Now, remember, the prayer of Daniel began with adoration in verse four, and then it continued with confession in verses five through eight. And in that confession, Daniel admits that the people have resisted God. They've neglected God. We might even say that God has appeared to them, revealed himself to them, revealed his grace and his mercy. They've spurned his mercy. They've rebelled against him. They've disobeyed him. They've broken God's laws. They've broken God's commandments. And so then the prayer of Daniel acknowledges God's righteousness and what I'm calling the forgotten attribute of God, the justice of God. And by acknowledging God's righteousness and God's justice, Daniel is in effect offering thanksgiving. It's his way of offering thanksgiving for the attributes of God, the power of God, the majesty of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God and the holiness of God. And then the prayer ends with petition in verses 15 through 19. This is where Daniel begins to beg God to listen. And to plead with God to respond. And Daniel pleads with the Lord to turn from his anger, to turn from his wrath towards the holy city of Jerusalem, to look with favor on the destroyed sanctuary in verse 16. And then he lists two reasons why God should consider turning from his anger and wrath. And the two reasons that he lists is because, number one, God is merciful and that by demonstrating his mercy, he is in, in, in a very real sense acting based on his own nature and, and that the justices of God has been satisfied because the people have suffered for their sins. Their homeland has been destroyed. Their families have been torn apart. They've spent 70 years in the place of captivity. The people are exiles in a foreign land, which means that they are the object of ridicule and scorn. And in a very real sense, it becomes a type and a picture for almost every Christian in America. Because Christians in America really aren't in a place of blessing and abundance, but they're in a place of captivity. But instead of being taken captive into Babylon, we've been taken captive into this world's Babylon, this world system. We've been drawn out of the safety and the security of Christ, and we've been drawn into the world. And because we've been drawn into the world, we begin to think like the world and speak like the world and act like the world. George Barna did a survey and he discovered that the unbeliever and the Christian's habits are almost identical. If you are an unbeliever or a believer, you're just as likely to watch a certain amount of TV, watch a certain amount of or listen to radio, you're to view certain movies and pictures and read certain books and magazines. In other words, we embrace the culture in which we live and we allow the culture to inform the way we think and the way we speak and how we live. And we're living not in a place of blessing and usefulness, but in a place of ridicule and scorn. And we've already seen, remember, that this prayer has been prompted by reading the Bible. Do you remember the first part of, of the chapter? He's read the Bible and in reading the Bible, he's discovered the word of God and the will of God. And now he begins to pray. And it's a prayer prompted by sinfulness. Look at verse five. We've sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Daniel begins where we all know we are. We are sinners by nature and by choice. But again, sin and sinners have fallen out of favor. In our culture, in our society. As a matter of fact, there are people who say, I don't want to go to, to Calvary Chapel in South Denver. Gina's going to talk about sin. He's, he might be even so bold as to accuse me of being a sinner. You know what? I, won't, I don't need to accuse you. The sin load will fall clearly, squarely on me. You know, I was thinking about this today. Not only am I a sinner, I'm a really bad sinner. I was even thinking, I think thoughts that would make the devil blush. That's pretty wicked. 
And then I understood something in the New Testament when Paul says that he's a sinner, that he's the chief of sinners, and that he wasn't worthy of the office that had been given to him and the privilege that had been given to him and the ministry that had been given to him. And I am not worthy of the office or the privilege of the ministry that's been given to me. The only reason that I can think that God would take someone as wicked and as foolish and as sinful as me is because he can't trust me out there. The only possible hope that I have is if in every day, in every way, I have to d- diligently devote myself to the things of God. Joseph and Daniel, by the way, are painted with the broad brush strokes of an impeccable character. There's really only two people in all of the Bible where nothing evil is ever spoken about them. One is Joseph, the other is Daniel. But even now, we see that Daniel has a keen sense of his own sinfulness and wickedness. He doesn't say, my people have sinned and my people have committed a great iniquity. He includes himself in the process. And Daniel uses four separate Hebrew words to describe sin. Number one, he says, we have sinned. And in that particular designation, it means to fall short, to miss the mark. And then he uses the second designation and committed iniquity, which means to twist and distort and pervert. Do you realize that the word iniquity is in the English language is linked to another word inequity? Do you know what that word means? Inequity. Inequity means that there is Something larger or smaller. In other words, inequity means something is greater and something is lesser. In iniquity and inequity are linked to the fact that it is a perversion, a twisting of God's moral standard, his sense of righteousness and justice. And so. When it says committed iniquity, the special emphasis is on acts or actions which are perverse. And then he says, we have done wickedly. You know what that means? Wickedly, when he says we have done wickedly, it covers the category of sins that you and I would characterize as being premeditated sins. Now, usually sins will fall into two categories. Those you have no idea that you are doing. And that those that you have every understanding that this is wrong. Now, I wish I could say that most of my sins fall into the category of sins of omission. He had no idea he was acting wickedly. But these are the sins of commission. These are the ones that you know are wrong and that you do them anyway. And then he uses the term rebelled, which means quite simply. To defy authority. It means to have something or someone in charge. And then you put your hands on your hips and say, no, not going to do it. It's a perfect picture of humanity, isn't it? We're created by God. Quite without God's permission, aren't we? Do you remember having a little powwow before you were born going, Okay, God, I want to be born in Louisiana, and I want my father to be from Sicily, and I want my mother to be a Mississippi mud-dirt farmer. I want them to be angry and upset with each other and divorce from one another, and I want to live in a world where there are no rules and there are no boundaries, where anything goes. And I get to be in charge of my life. Did you have a conversation like that with God? Probably not, did you? But there was a time in your life where you woke up and you realized that you were someone and that you could make choices. And there were consequences for those choices. And Daniel prays, he says, neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets. Here is the idea. You went out of your way to tell us what your expectations are. And we didn't care. 
Isn't that a perfect picture of what the, the Bible is? It's a set in a series of circumstances where God reveals his expectations. He says, who spoke in your name to our kings and princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. In other words, you gave us an accurate and specific communication about what you desired. Daniel admits the people have refused to hear God's prophets, the people who speak for God. And then in verse seven, it says, O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us. Shame of face. The idea being God is holy and perfect. He's done exactly the right thing. But shame of face belongs to us. In other words, it's not your bad. Daniel doesn't blame God and he doesn't blame the circumstances of his life and he doesn't blame because he happened to be born in exactly this particular time and in this particular place. He and his generation didn't add up to the guilt and the rebellion. He finally comes to a place and he himself evidently serves the Lord, but he belongs to a part of a generation that has rebelled and resisted God. And then the city is destroyed and he and his family are taken into captivity. And in verse 7, he says, righteousness belongs to you, but shame of face to us. And the word shame is an interesting word. It means more than just having done something wrong. It means that something is fundamentally wrong with me or with you. Let me give you a quick illustration. Imagine you have a neighbor and the neighbor comes to you and then knocks on the door and says, hey, I need to confess something to you. I'm having an affair with this particular person. Now, you might think, why is my neighbor telling this? Too much information! And then the neighbor says to you, do you think I've done something wrong? And you, because you're you, you begin the conversation, you say, it's none of my business. But then they press you and then you say, yes, what you've done is wrong. And then the person says, I'm so ashamed. You see, shame isn't just the admission that you've done something wrong. Shame is the admission that there's something so fundamentally broken, so something so fundamentally, tragically broken that you wonder whether or not you can put it back together. And so the contrast between the righteousness of God and the shame of face, it says, as it is this day to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off and all the countries. You know, who he's talking about he's talking about two groups of people. The tribes of Benjamin and the tribes of Judah have been taken captive to Babylon. The ten northern tribes have been dispersed among the countries, but life and Love and country and the temple have all disappeared. You've driven us because of the unfaithfulness which they committed against you. So the disobedience has brought shame. And then in verse 8 it says, O Lord, to us belong shame of face to our kings, our princes, our fathers, because we have sinned against you. In other words, this is a particular situation where he's willing to divvy up the blame to both the leaders and the followers. And he says in verse 8, O Lord, to us belongs the shame. Verse 9, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness though we have rebelled against him. Now, look at the contrast. This is, and if there's anything wonderful about sin, it can be forgiven. If you have cancer, you may not be healed. If you have emphysema, if you have a pulmonary embolism, if you have some physical problem, you may or may not 
recover from that physical problem. But the great thing about sin is that it can be confessed and it can be repented of and it can be forsaken to the Lord. Our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against him. And this becomes an important answer to maybe one of the most important questions that you could ever ask. And that is, can I sin in such a way that I find myself outside of the mercy and the forgiveness of God? And you know what the right answer is? No, because there is mercy and there is forgiveness, isn't there? In the person of Jesus Christ. And in Daniel chapter 9, verse 10, he continues to pray. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. In other words, Daniel adds the sin of disobedience to God, and then he confesses his sin and the sin of his people. The Bible, of course, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word in the New Testament, if we confess our sin, is the Greek word hama, which means the same, logos, which is the word. It means to say the same thing in the biblical sense. It means to agree with God. In this sense, it means to agree with God about our sinful heart condition. And so confession means when you begin to speak in such a way that you begin to agree with God about your circumstance of heart, you make it you're making progress. And that's why confession plays such an important part. In the Christian's prayer life. And you'll notice that Daniel uses some very hard and specific words to describe his sin. But unlike Daniel, we are prone to use euphemisms to describe our rebellion. We call it an accident. But God calls it an abomination. We call it a blunder. God calls it blindness. We call it a defect. God calls it a disaster. We call it a chance. God calls it a choice. We call it error. God calls it enmity. We call it a fascination. God calls it a fatality. We call it an infirmity. God calls it iniquity. We call it luxury. God calls it leprosy. We call it liberty. God calls it lawlessness. We call it a trifle. God calls it a tragedy. We call it a mistake. But God calls it madness. It doesn't make sense. You know, you've heard the expression, well, confession is good for the soul. And perhaps it is. But the Bible makes it abundantly clear. And Daniel's prayer makes it abundantly clear. Confession hurts. Doesn't it? Have you ever sat across the table from someone and said these words? Why can't you just simply say you're sorry? You ever done that? Why can't you say, and go, go ahead, watch my lips. I was wrong. And I suspect that the reason is because confession comes with the expectation of change. Because the moment that you say, I was wrong, this was wrong, this was sinful, this was wicked, this was unacceptable, along with the recognition of we have sinned, comes the expectation of go and sin no more. Because the moment that a person confesses isn't implicit in that confession, a, a, a willingness for the person to say, and by God's grace and with God's mercy and with God's help and with God's power, I don't want to do this anymore. Because the moment that you say that and then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again, there is this sense of guilt and hypocrisy that's weighted on top of you. But here's what the Bible says. 
real repentance will bring about a real abandoning of whatever it is that you're repenting of. There really is no such thing as repentance without abandoning the sin. So when are you least likely to confess your sin? You know the answer. It's when you're not willing to give it up. And you see, this is why repentance plays plays such an important part in this thing called prayer, in this thing called the recognition of sin, in this thing called confession, because you are wasting your time and you're wasting everyone else's time. You're wasting your husband's time, your wife's time, your children's time, your boss's time. You're wasting everyone's time when you say, I'm sorry, but you're unwilling to leave the sin. Greg Laurie once, he, he referred to these people as most. And I've used this illustration before. A mugwump is where your mug is on one side of the fence and your wump is on the other. And you're you're clearly right on the fence. And you're not willing to change. Ian Blaylock wrote, the period of our devotions must contain a moment of pain. It's not God's intention that we should writhe under it or linger in it, but specific and sincere confession of our own sin is no joyous exercise, unquote. And I, I wrote next to that quote, Amen. Wow, this is not fun. And by the way, You'll remember when the leaders tried to conspire against Daniel to find some inconsistency, some hypocrisy, some character flaw in his life. Do you remember when we were studying earlier in the sixth chapter of Daniel in verse four, it said they could find no charge or fault because he was faithful, nor was there any error or or fault found in him. And I thought, what if someone began that kind of an investigation of my heart and my life and my circumstances. You don't have to go far to find my faults. All you have to do is just talk to my wife and she'll say, sure, I'm willing to share with you. Yeah, he's a sinner, both by nature and by choice. But Daniel cries out to God. We have sinned. Daniel identifies with himself and his people. And you see, that's what life-changing prayer really will do. Your life will begin to change when you confess your sin, but also when you confess your sin in such a way that you're also going to forsake your sin and your life will change when you begin to identify with the sins of your husband and your wife and your children and your nation. You begin to identify with the sins of the country in which you are living in and the government that you are under and the people who are ruling and you begin to collectively and personally begin to cry out to God and you identify with the sins of your people. And the prayer of Daniel reminds us that we can't detach my sins and your sins from each other. Because remember what Paul writes in the New Testament. He says, we being many are one body joined and fitted together. And if we're living in the illusion that my sin doesn't matter to you, we have deceived ourselves and we've injured the body. Because we live in a culture that values happiness over holiness. I looked long and hard in the scriptures. I could find no scripture that says, be happy as I am happy. But I did find a scripture that says, be ye holy as I am holy. But when a person desires to be happy and not holy, they will be neither happy nor holy. Sin is never an isolated incident. And when it happens in the body, it happens everywhere in the body. 
And that's why there is this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful provision that's been given to us in the Bible. The ability to recognize sin and to forsake sin and to confess sin and receive forgiveness for sin and to receive mercy for sin and then experience restoration. And we are hurting each other when we undermine the process. When we refuse to confront, when we refuse to confess, when we refuse to forgive, when we refuse to repent, when we refuse to restore. And Daniel is a holy man, isn't he? He's a humble man and a righteous man. But he, get, he begins his prayer with confession. By the way, if it's been a while since you've brought personal sin before a holy God, my guess is it isn't because you haven't sinned. I'm going to guess it's because you've deceived yourself about the condition of your heart. At least that's been my experience. That's why the Bible says, confess your sins. He's faithful and just to forgive you. And if you have grown insensitive to sin, then the Bible gives us the opportunity to awaken once more in our hearts a sense of God's holiness, His righteousness, His purity. And so, life-changing prayer begins there, but it continues, amplified by worship. Daniel's prayer proceeds through a series of stages. And again, as we look at it and we think about it, Daniel reads the Word of God. He's, remember, he's motivated to pray. He discovers the will of God. He repeats the revelation. He prays fervently and then frequently. He confesses his sin. He confesses the sin of his people. Now, listen carefully. He confesses his sin and he confesses the sin of his people. And it's important that you get this part. Because he knows something. Daniel is aware of something. And the something that Daniel is aware of is that sin separates us from God. Sin impedes and retards. It interferes with what God wants to do in our lives. And because it impedes, retards, impairs. This is why the Bible talks about it in this important way. When the disciples ask Jesus to teach him to pray, you'll remember Jesus speaking to his disciples says, OK, when you pray, pray this way. Say, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus teaches us to begin in worship and we end in worship. You'll remember for yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever, because the ultimate reason to pray is to worship God and sin impedes our ability to worship God in a free way. That's why the Bible says your sin separates you. That's why the Bible says make sure that when you come to God, you come with a clean slate. And when you come to God with a clean slate, again, what happens is you now have the ability to worship and magnify the Lord. And remember what the word magnify means. It just means to make something great. Now, God is great. Can you make him greater? No. Can you make him smaller? No. Can you take anything away from him? No. Can you give him anything that he doesn't already have? No. So how do you magnify him? <laughs> I think that one of the ways is, again, to constantly and consistently and specifically remind him of what the Bible already says about him. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Now, just for a moment, I want you to go back to verse 4. Remember what it says? And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. That word, awesome, is connected to the concept of God's majesty. 
The New King James Version translates the Hebrew word awesome. But do you know what it says in the Old King James? In the Old King James, it says, And I prayed unto the Lord my God and made confession. It seems like when you use the Old King James, you should talk like that too. Oh, Lord, great and dreadful God. They use the word dreadful instead of the word awesome. And I think that because the word dreadful has lost its meaning in our culture and our society. When I say the word dreadful, what do you think? Her dress is dreadful. Her hair, that's dreadful. That makeup. But that's not what the word meant. The word actually meant awesome in your ability to act in perfection. And so when you stood before a king who had the ability to give you life or take your life away to make you rich or make you poor, that person occupied a position of dread. Dreadful is a word that's that's lost in our culture. It's connected to the concept of fearing the Lord. And even that word has lost its meaning. Because so many people will say, you know, the Bible, when it says fear the Lord, it doesn't really mean fear the Lord. Let me be very clear with you. Whenever a Bible teacher says, it doesn't really mean what it says, you need to be careful of that Bible teacher. Because I'm here to tell you that when the Bible says, fear the Lord, the Bible means fear the Lord. And the reason is because, remember, God gives you life and God can take it away. God is absolutely holy and God is absolutely just. God literally does have your hand in his hand. God banished Adam and Eve from the garden. God washed the world in a global flood. God struck Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household with plagues of judgment. And you know where Pharaoh is today? He's in a British museum wrapped in cloth. And you know where God is? In heaven, ruling supremely. When Saul turned a deaf ear to God, the dreadful God exercised judgment. When Nebuchadnezzar Wicked heart elevated himself. A dreadful God caused him to eat grass. When Belshazzar's cup was full, the dreadful God wrote on the wall, you've been weighed and found wanting. When Herod killed John the Baptist, the dreadful God took something as simple as a worm and he caused that worm to eat Herod's intestines while he was still alive. God killed him in the place of meeting and God destroyed Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome and Egypt and Nineveh and Jerusalem. And you want to know why? Because they turned from the righteousness of God and if God is willing to destroy a person and to destroy a nation, it's okay to use the term dreadful to describe him. And that's the key. Daniel is describing a kind of God that nations shouldn't ignore and that men should revere. And then look what it says in verse 11. Prayer expanded by the majesty of God. Daniel prays. He says, yes, yes, yes. All Israel has transgressed your law. They crossed the line. They've departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us. And again, I don't you don't need me to tell you that Daniel is pointing out that the words of Moses found in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. This is the accurate communication of a God who wants his people to know. And he says the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because remember what it said. If you do what I ask you to do, you'll be fine. But if you rebel and if you disobey me, what's going to happen? Judgment's going to happen. 
but we don't believe it. The sinner doesn't really believe it. The sinner who holds on to his or her sin doesn't really believe it. Even as they're praying, they pray prayers like this, Lord, I know that you love me and I know that you love me and I know that you love me and, you're, and nothing really bad is going to happen to me. There's no judgment that could possibly happen. And, and Lord, I know that I've planted the seed and I know that the Bible says what you sow, you'll also reap. And I, Lord, kill the crop. Just make it go away, Lord. Kill the crop. I know I've sown the seed, but I don't want to experience the crop. But the Bible says God is not mocked what a person sows that also they will reap. And if you sow rebellion and disobedience, you'll reap judgment. And he actually prays that. He, he thanks God that God is a God who keeps his word. In verse 12, it says he's confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster for under the whole heaven. Such has never been done as what has been done in Jerusalem. In other words, all of the prophets, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, who warned repeatedly, over and over again, unless you turn from your sin, unless you embrace the Lord, you're going to experience judgment. And he said it over and over and over again, and they rejected him over and over again. And finally, judgment came. I was reading in Alfred Edersheim. It's a little bit difficult to understand. But he writes in his great book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he says whenever a Greek or a Roman or an Asiatic might wander, he could take his gods with him. He could find rites like his own. It was otherwise with the Jew. He had only one temple. That temple was in Jerusalem. Only one God who was enthroned between the cherubim who was king over Zion. That temple was the only place where a God-appointed pure priesthood could offer acceptable sacrifices, whether for forgiveness of sin or for the fellowship with God. Here in the impenetrable gloom of the innermost sanctuary, which is the high priest alone, might enter once a year for that most solemn expiation. That means the, the ritual of forgiveness. Had stood the ark, the leader of the people, into the land of promise and the footstool on which the Shekinah, that's the glory of God rested from that golden altar rose the sweet cloud of incense symbol of Israel's accepted prayers that seven branched candlestick shed its perpetual light indicative of the brightness of God's covenant presence on that table as it were before the face of Jehovah was laid week by week the bread of the face a constant sacrificial meal which Israel offered to God and wherewith God in turn fed the priesthood on the great blood-sprinkled altar of sacrifice, Israel, wherever scattered while the vast courts of the temple were thronged not only by native Palestinians but literally Jews out of every nation under heaven. Around this temple gathered the sacred memories of the past so it clung to the brighter Hopes of the future, the history of Israel and all their prospects were intertwined with their religion so that it may be said that without their religion, they had no history and without no history, they had no religion, no history, no patriotism, no religion, no hope because there was no temple and they weren't in Jerusalem. That's why he's praying this prayer. He's praying this prayer because he knows that the place of obedience, the, the place of blessing, the place of experiencing the presence of God, the place of encountering the promises of God, the, the place of fulfilling the will of God was in the place that God had planned. And that's why he's so upset. And that's why he's praying the prayer that he's praying. And in verse 13, it says, as it is written in the law of Moses. That's the first five books of Moses. All this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquity and understand the truth. This is Daniel's way of praying. I know it's in the Bible. It's said that this would happen. But we as a people have ignored the Bible. And it happened just like the Bible said it would. That we might turn from our iniquities, it says, and understand our truth. And see, this is why, this is why, this is why I teach you the Bible. Because when I teach you the Bible, you begin to understand the character of God. 
And you begin to understand the will of God. And you begin to understand the promises of God. And then you begin to understand the prophecies of God. And when you understand the word of God, the will of God, the promises of God, the character of God, the prophecies of God. Now, all of a sudden, when you make your prayers before the Lord God and the, and the word of God begins to reveal the actual literal circumstances of your life and of your heart, it gives you an opportunity to turn from your sin, forsake your sin, understand the truth and then walk in the truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept the disaster in mind. That's what Daniel prays and brought it upon us for the Lord. Our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. In other words, over and over again, Daniel reiterates two words, justice and righteousness, which in the Bible are linked together. As a matter of fact, in the Hebrew language, the word justice in the Hebrew language and the word righteousness have the same root meaning. And so they're almost interchangeable. But justice becomes the one attribute of God that we're least likely to embrace. Because it's the attribute that says. God will not. Overlook sin. God will not ignore rebellion and disobedience. God will not pretend like it didn't happen. And see, this is the beauty of the gospel. This is the power that you read over and over again in your Bible. Jesus came to forgive sin. Jesus came as a merciful sacrifice. On Sunday, I said, men thought he was a man and they murdered him. God sacrificed him. Man's murder was God's sacrifice. I read something really interesting today about poinsettias. That if you shine a red light on the red leaf of the poinsettia, it turns white. Is the poinsettia red? Yes. Is the poinsettia white? Yes. If it's seen with the lens of a red light, the Bible says that you are red in trespasses and sins. Your soul has been soaked and saturated. You are transgressors, wicked and sinful. But for whatever reason, God takes a special light, the light of Jesus Christ. And when he looks on the surface of your soul, he sees a sparkling white, absolutely clean conscience. And you're wondering, how could that possibly be? I, from my perspective, it's not clean. That's because he sees you differently. Remember the he warned them. He warned them over and over again. He warned them that they were in captivity because of rebellion and disobedience. He warned them. They rejected God's mercy. They confirmed their sin. But God says, I'm going to still keep my promises. And remember, the people hadn't repented of their sin and they refused to obey the truth. And the Lord is righteous and just when he exercises and executes judgment upon all those who disobey him. But it doesn't have to be that way. There's mercy and forgiveness. And so now we see prayer magnified by the mercy. Look what it says in verse 16. Oh, Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. That's Zion because of for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. And so Daniel prays, oh, Lord, according to your righteousness. Not according to our sin or our iniquity. Now Daniel is actually bold in his prayer. Have you ever thought you were a little too bold in your prayer? Lord, I know it just it seems it doesn't seem to make sense to ask you to forgive me over and over again, but I'm going to. Do you realize that when you do that, when you ask God to act from the frame of reference of his righteousness and his forgiveness and his mercy, you are praying in such a way that you honor and please God. I'm going to say something shocking to you. 
How many of you, and this is one of those very few times I really do want to see a show of hands. How many of you want to go to heaven? That's good. That's good. How many of you, when you go to heaven, will be thrilled to see God? Okay. How many of you think that God will be thrilled to see you? This is good. This is good because that's good theology. Because that's the truth. God is going to be thrilled to see you. He loves you. He sent His Son to die for you. He's forgiven you and reconciled you. And He's gone through this incredible process because He is excited and thrilled that there's going to be a a point of reconciliation that's going to be a mind-blowing reconciliation. And in verse 17, Daniel prays. He says, Now therefore, O God, Our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. And by the way, Jerusalem is destroyed and the sanctuary is destroyed. So why? Why is this so important to him? Why is it so important to Daniel? For the face of God to shine on the sanctuary of God, which is desolate. It's because it's this sanctuary. It's this place. That represents the favor of God and the presence of God and the plan of God and the prophecies of God and the will of God. This is the place. This is the place where Jesus is going to show up. This is the place where he's going to drive out the money changers. This is the place where he's going to heal and teach. This is the place where the Messiah is going to show up and communicate the plan of God and the purposes of God. And then it says in verse 18, oh, my God, incline your ear and hear open your eyes and see our desolations and a city which is called by your name for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds but because of your great mercies Daniel basically says we have nothing to offer you we have nothing to give you we've done nothing we don't deserve this sound familiar Lord I know I don't deserve this right Act according to your mercy, right? That's why it's cool to pray that way. He says, not because of what I've done, but because of your great mercies. Do you know what Daniel knows? He knows that the people are not Righteous. Question. Did Jesus know that the disciples aren't righteous? You think it was like a big shock? Wow, I had no idea that, Peter, you were so, uh, well, flawed. James, John, Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew. Dude, you're really not what I would call apostolic material. But it becomes abundantly clear that whatever favor, whatever righteousness, whatever thing that is going to be exercised in the life of the believer, it's going to be put there by God. No wonder Paul can write in the New Testament, you're saved by grace through faith. It's the gift of God. It's the grace of God and the mercy of God. We sang it. It's your kindness that leads us to Repentance. Daniel knows that the people aren't righteous. Daniel plead his pleadings and his supplications aren't based on how good these people are, but based on how great God's mercy is. Warren Wiersbe writes, God in his grace gives us what we don't deserve. And God in his mercy doesn't give us what we do deserve. Daniel asked the Lord to turn away his anger from Jerusalem 
and the holy temple. He admits that the sins of Israel, including Daniel, were the cause of that great catastrophe, but that God had promised to forgive his people if they would repent and confess their sins. He writes, we do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. And so you're on good ground. When you say to the Lord, Lord. I'm asking you to do this, not because of something that I've done. But because of what you've done in Christ. This is prayer that's focused on the faithfulness of God and informed by the holiness of God and and motivated by the glory of God. And look at verse 19. It says, oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord. Forgive. Oh, Lord, listen and act. Don't delay For your sake, my God, for your city and your people who are called by your name. Remember what has prompted the prayer. Do you remember what has prompted the prayer? Daniel has been reading the book of what? Jeremiah and the book of Jeremiah revealed that the people would be in captivity for how long? How close are they to the 70 mile mark? They're about three years away. And so as he's praying, he's going, Lord, you have a plan and a purpose. It's to forgive us and to restore us, to take us back so that we'll build Jerusalem and build the temple and establish a place where you can fulfill the plans and the purposes that you have for all of humanity. That's the kind of prayer that will not only change your life and change your family's life, but it will it will fundamentally change the world when you find yourself in the exact place that God wants you. Now, look what Daniel says. He wants this more than anything else. Lord, forgive. Lord, listen. Don't postpone. Don't put off your plans. Don't postpone. Don't delay your plans. Lord, do exactly what you plan to do. Let me ask you a question. Can't you hear the passion in his voice? Lord, do what you said you were going to do. Don't delay. Do what you said that you're going to do. Now, there's there's a parallel in the New Testament. Do you remember what Jesus said when he's talking about prayer? He talks about ask, seek, knock. And you keep asking. And you keep seeking. And you keep knocking. And so Daniel says, He keeps asking. He keeps seeking. He keeps knocking. He keeps begging. He keeps pleading. He wants the Lord to answer. He wants the Lord to answer quickly. And he says, answer me, Lord. Answer me and do it because it honors you. Do it because your honor and your reputation are at stake. Because every day that the city lies in ruins, every day that the wall isn't built, every day that the temple remains destroyed, every day that the people remain in bondage, every single day, it brings shame to the name of the living God. It brings shame to the true Savior of Israel. And every day, every day that your life is in ruins and every day that the wall hasn't been built around your life, every day that you remain in captivity to your sin, to your drug and your alcohol addiction, every day that you are focused on yourself, every day that you put off the plan of God for your life, guess what? The Lord is injured. We bring shame on the name of the living God and the true Savior of the world. Because Jesus is the Lord. He is the true Lord, the true Lord. And when all is said and done, Daniel says, for your own reputation, for your own sake, do this. So why is Daniel praying? Is he doing it because he's the man of God? Is he doing it because he cares about his own safety? Is he doing it because he himself will go back to Jerusalem? No. He's praying because the people, the people must leave their captivity. They must return to the city. There must be a restoration to the city. There must be a restoration of the sanctuary. There must be a restoration of their heritage. There must be a restoration of their culture. And there must be something else. 
a Messiah. A real Messiah. And so we pray. We pray. And we ask people to leave captivity. We ask people to return to the place where they belong. We ask them to return to the sanctuary. We ask them to return to their heritage. We ask them to return to their culture. We ask them to cooperate with God in the plan of God because ultimately Jesus Christ must be all and in all because it is Christ who reconciles everyone. And so we pray. We seek God's face. But we have to allow Bible study to drive us into the arms of God. To pray to God. To pray the word of God and the will of God to reveal the plan of God so that you'll cooperate with it. By the way, what do your prayers reflect? What are your prayers focused on? Is your prayer focused on yourself? Or is it focused on the plan of God? Do your prayers reflect conceit or concern? Do they focus on what you value? Or do they focus on what God values? Are you praying for the leaders in your nation, in your community, in your church? Are you praying that the leaders will open up their Bible, see the Word of God, that the plan of God will be revealed, that the iniquity of the heart would be exposed, that repentance would take place, that sin would be identified, that repentance would take place, that forgiveness would be embraced, that reconciliation would take place, Let me ask you a question. Do you ask the Lord to use you to glorify himself in your home and in your neighborhood, in your church, in the world? Are you deeply concerned about upholding God's character and God's justice, but at the same time reflecting God's character and God's justice in your speech? And in your conduct. And by the way, has your family already begun to reap the benefits of your prayer life? I know it's true for some of you. You've prayed for that granddaughter, that grandson. You've prayed for that brother and that sister. You've prayed for that neighbor. You've prayed, you've prayed, you've prayed your guts out. You've prayed for the circumstances and you're seeing the plan of God begin to unfold right before your eyes. Where in Wiersbe writes, Daniel, who knew God's immediate plan for the nation of Israel. But what about the distant future? He already learned from the visions God gave him that difficult days lay ahead for God's people with a kingdom to appear that would crush everything good and promote everything evil. Would God's people survive? Would the promised Messiah finally appear? Would the kingdom of God be established on the earth? Daniel is about to receive the answers. To those questions. I suspect that as you press forward, you're about to receive answers for prayers long, long asked. But that's for another study. But tonight, we have communion. I'll have Sam come up. We're going to pray. Gosh, what happened to the time? i got to get you out of here. Let's get Sam up. I'm going to pray. We're going to hand out the elements. Again, here's what I ask you to do. Just hold the elements so we all have an opportunity to partake together. Heavenly Father, Lord, just like 
Daniel longed for a temple and a sanctuary. Lord, we know that we are the temple of God and the sanctuary of God. And that in the Old Covenant, there was a series of sacrifices. But in the New Covenant, there's one sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus. So that, Lord, we can pray and we can experience forgiveness and hope and mercy and grace. And we don't have to go to Jerusalem. But we can experience it right here, right now. That because of Jesus, because he died on the cross and because he rose from the dead. He can speak to us here. He can address the issue here. We know that Jesus is merciful and forgiving, gracious and good. And Heavenly Father, I pray for that person who has found themselves a long way away from you. It's been a while since they've confessed their sin. It's been a while since they've experienced forgiveness. It's been a while since they've experienced cleansing. Lord, I pray that even now, that that would happen. Lord, I pray for that person who desires a clean slate, a new beginning. Lord, I pray that they would begin to examine their hearts and Lord, as they do and as you begin to reveal circumstances of their life that they could confess that. But Lord, we pray that you would also give them the courage and the strength to say, Lord, please help me not to confess anything that I'm not willing to forsake. Lord, help me not to live in a a pitiful world where I've deceived myself into thinking that I could confess my sin and not forsake my sin. Lord, reveal to us your plan. And then, Lord, we pray that we could participate in that plan. And, Lord, we know that part of your plan is that you will that none perish, but that all have everlasting life. And so, Lord, for the person who is here sitting and they don't know whether or not they have everlasting life, Lord, I pray that they would pray that simple prayer. Lord, forgive my sin. Have mercy on me. I, too, have committed sins and done things that would make the devil blush. But I want to experience forgiveness. I want to experience hope. I want to experience a new life in Jesus. So forgive me now. Cause me to forsake my sin. Create within me a new heart. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen.